Why do they do it? Is it, is it because this is just our club? You know, some people have the Rotary and some of the Lions Club, but, but we have center point, and so this is our club, and so we have to sort of do our job to make sure the club works. Is that it? I hope not. Oh, I hope not. Because you can find a better club. If you're looking for a club, you can find a better one. I hope that you do what you do and you offer what you offer and you generously give what you give because you know that Jesus Christ has worked in your life and found you a dead man or a dead woman destined for hell. Your future was bleak and dark and godless. And someone somewhere set up a chair, tuned a guitar, taught a Sunday school lesson, preached a sermon, shared Jesus with you, and you responded. And now you come as the recipient of what God has given to you, and you are generously providing that for somebody else. See, this is his method. The church is his method. If Jesus waits a thousand years before he comes, raptures us to be with him, and ends this time, the Rotary Club won't be here. Neither will the Lions Club, neither will any other club. Your team probably won't exist anymore. They probably won't even play that sport anymore. But the church will be here. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And there will still be people awkwardly teaching lessons, walking up front with nervous hands, holding a Bible, teaching little children or adults and playing an instrument and leading people to worship. And through these weak people who stumble over their words, who need cards to remind them what to say, Through these weak people, God will be glorified. It's how the Lord works. He uses the weak things, the things that are not, so that those that are something are amazed and say that shouldn't be. I want to talk about generosity for the next couple of weeks. I want to talk about our really need to respond to what we've been given, to offer that to others. That's kind of Lowell's definition of generosity. Now, I haven't always been a generous person, and I'm not saying that I even am today. I remember when I, first, when I got my first bank account. Do you remember that? In Kaiser, it was the first national bank, a little red book, okay, that you would bring with you to the bank, to your savings account, and you would pass it in that little window, and the lady would take it, and and you'd give her your $10, and she would hand write it, remember that? And she'd hand write it in my book, and and I I wonder what would happen if I wrote in my own number, if I had an extra zero or something, I don't know, but she would hand write that in there, and then I would take that little red book home and, and just, oh, savor it. I was probably about 10, 11 years old when I, when I got my first job. 
that a guy actually paid for, okay? Not go get the wood in, boy. Not that kind of job. But, you know, where I actually asked somebody to hire me and they said yes, and now I was working and I got paid. And I remember taking my $30 that I would get for this week of work and making a deposit at the First National Bank. And they'd write in that 30 in the book, and I'd take it home. And I also remember now storing it in this little box that I had in my bedroom, on my dresser, I had this little wooden box with a, you know, with a hinge lid, and I'd put that red little savings account book in there and, and shut the box. And you know, do whatever I'm going to do, play basketball or go fishing, hang out with my family, whatever. And every once in a while, I'd go back into my bedroom and I'd open up that box and I'd pull out that little red book and I'd open up the first page and I'd just look at it. Do you remember doing this or am I just the only freak in the room? <laughs> and I would see $85. Fold it up, put it in the box, shut the lid, go do what I want to do. The next day, I'd come back in the room. I'd pull it out again. $85. I'd close the book, put it in a box, shut the lid, go do what I want to do. I remember when it was over $100. Wow. hundred bucks mine. I think the reason why I remember it so clearly is I remember going into my room, opening up that box, pulling out the little red book, opening it up, looking at it. Close it, put it in the box, clap the lid, and go do what I want to do. Did anybody else do this? Am I the only? Nobody? Oh, one. Thank you, Paul. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk about money today. I want to talk about money. We, we don't like to talk about money. And I really, I guess I'd ask the question, why is money talk so controversial? Why? Why is, it, why is it such a no-no that we don't talk about it? I heard a story about a missionary who worked in a tribal setting. And when he arrived there in the, in the tribal setting where he was tasked to disciple these people, one of the things he noticed early on is that there were many people, a high percentage of people, I mean not most, but, but more than normal, people who were missing a limb. Missing an arm, missing a leg. They'd, they, a limb had been taken somehow. And he, he saw this and was bothered by it and went to the person who he was staying with and said, why does everybody, why are all the limbs missing? And the person was very awkward. Well, no, they don't, don't want to, no, no answer. You should, you should talk to this person, talk to the, talk to the village elder. So he went, went to the village elder and he, at this point, he's wondering, is it maybe it's some of the Islamic terrorists around? They're coming and are they lopping off arms? What, what is the deal? But he goes into this, this hut, that type of a setting, and he, and he asks the village elder, why so many people have lost limbs? And the elder was, was very reserved, didn't want to talk about it. We don't, we don't talk about those things. Well, I'd like to know why. What's, what's the deal? Why, why have some people lost limbs? And Finally, the, the village elder, and I guess his understanding of realizing he had this, this ignorant American person here with him, and, all right, he said, it's the crocodiles. What do you mean? It's the crocodiles that come out of the, that come out of the river, and they, they snatch us, and they spin around, and it breaks off our limbs. It's the crocodiles. 
And the, the missionary said, well, we need to do something about this. We need to fix this. What, what, we don't talk about this, he said. We don't talk about it. And through a long sort of interaction, the way he acts, it went on for like several days or weeks. He finally found out that in this village setting, they worshipped the crocodile. And it was wrong for them to talk about it. You weren't allowed to talk about the crocodile. Because it was a, from their past, it was, a, it was an item of worship. They bowed down to the crocodile. And so now it was this taboo topic that nobody was willing to talk about, but yet it was ruining lives. Now this gentleman connected it to our sexuality and said sexuality is ruining lives and we aren't willing to talk about it. But what I would suggest that in addition, money is ruining lives and we're not willing to talk about it. Now, I'll be honest with you. I just used the word we, but quite honestly, that's a weak way of me saying me. I shy away from it. I shy away. And I need to fix that. I've been wrong. We need to talk about our money. We need to talk about being generous with our money. As I've thought about it, there's three reasons why we don't talk about it. Three reasons. I'll put them on your worship notes. I don't think these are original with me, but I don't know the source. First of all, the reason we don't like to talk about money and our giving is because, quite honestly, it's measurable. It's measurable. You see, you know you're supposed to read your Bible. You know that you're supposed to love those around you. You know that you're supposed to invite people to Christ. You know all that. And you also know that God calls us to be generous. But with your Bible reading and with your love and with your actions out there, it's not measurable. But money is. You can easily see, you can easily evaluate how you use your money. And the generosity of your heart with your money, is very measurable. If you give through the offering envelopes here at Centerpoint, you get a list, you get, you get a breakdown of your giving at the end of the year. It's very measurable, and we aren't comfortable with that. We don't like measurements. It's measurable. Secondly, it's manageable. Our giving and our use of money is manageable. Here's what I mean. If you came in here this morning and you thought, I think I'd like to give today. And open up your wallet. Most of us, our wallet is empty. I never have cash. Do you? Never. Never. But see, our giving and our use of money requires management. I have to think, what am I going to do today when it comes to giving as unto the Lord? And I have to make a decision prior to this moment of what I'm going to do. Because if I just wait till the moment, I don't have any money left over, do you? I mean, when it gets to the end of the month, are you looking at piles of cash sitting around your house? Me neither. See, it's manageable. 
and it's also meaningful. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money means a lot. It truly does. And the thing about our money and and how we use it is is it reveals our heart. Look at that passage now. It's in your worship notes. Okay, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It reveals and it directs our heart. It directs our heart. Where I invest my money, my heart will be also. Where I invest my time, my heart will be also. Where I invest my effort, my heart will be also. How we use our treasure, be our abilities, our money, our time, it reveals our heart and it directs our heart. Our money, our generosity, our willingness to share is a thermometer of our spiritual state, folks. It truly is. It really is. When I was 10, 11 years old, and I would go in there to my box and look at my bank book, I was revealing, I was revealing my idol. And I would regularly go into my bedroom there to the throne and worship that idol over and over and over again. That's what that was. It was worship. I would come and I would evaluate its worth and I would feel filled with joy over its worth. Our money, our time, our efforts, and how generous we are is a great thermometer of our spiritual state. So I want to talk about it for the next three weeks. I hope that you don't check out and not come back for that reason, but that's for you and the Lord, I guess. So for the next three weeks, we're going to spend some time in the book of 2 Corinthians. And I want you to open up there with me right now. And I want to talk about this a little bit. Now for the for those, for the OCD note takers in the room, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to finish this sermon, okay? It's not going to happen today. So just get over it, okay? We're going to continue it next week. It's just, I'm planning on that. So, so just relax on that, okay? Second Corinthians is where we're going to be. And I want to say a word about this book and about what Paul is writing. And where we're headed today, at the end of our time, when we are together here, We are going to reflect upon the most generous offer ever made in the history of the earth. And that is the offer of Jesus Christ when he gave his life for us. And I want to challenge you with the idea that if God is truly conforming you to the image of his son, isn't a marker of that image being generous, being generous with everything that we have, giving to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is where I want to start today because I've been so impacted by this verse this week. And so I just want to just share this with you and, and then we'll go on to our main passage. And 2 Corinthians chapter 6 at verse number 11 is a great, great 
These are the words of, of any pastor, of any preacher, of any teacher, of any father and mother, of any shepherd. Here's your words. And 2 Corinthians 6, 11, 12, and 13. Hear this and, and let it impact us today. Paul writes, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We have, our heart is wide open. Paul's saying, I have just laid out my guts for you, Corinth. I have poured out my guts to you and told you everything I have to offer. You are not restricted by us. In other words, we're not holding you back. But you are restricted in your own affections. What Paul is saying is, I've poured my heart out to you, Corinth. And I'm not holding you back in any way. I'm not keeping you from some good thing. You're keeping yourself from something good. So Paul says, in return, and I'm speaking to you as to my own children. These are words of love of Paul to these believers. Widen your hearts. I love that expression. I love that term right there. Widen your hearts. And I would say that to you, Centerpoint Bible Church. Widen your hearts. I'm pouring my heart out to you. Widen your hearts. He says it again in verse number two of chapter seven. He says, Make room in your hearts for us. Let's talk about Corinth for a little bit. Corinth was a modern day. It, it, actually, it was, it's an ancient day, America. L- let me just tell you a little bit about Corinth, okay? Corinth was an exceedingly wealthy community. They, they, they were, they, their means was great, and they knew it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 8, Paul says, You know you're rich. They, this was a rich community. Rich in wealth, rich in education, rich in culture, rich in opportunity. This, this was in very much, in many ways, just like America. Let me tell you some of the things that were very, very important to the city of Corinth. First of all, sexuality. Hugely important in the city of Corinth. Homosexuality, heterosexuality, adultery, and divorce were issues that were just being discussed and lived all the time. Sexuality ruled the day in Corinth, as did gender role issues. Yeah, in Corinth. There were men dressing like women, and there were women dressing like men. Well, I thought that was something brand new. Nope. Been around since the start of time that God has rebelled against, that people have rebelled against God and the nature he has made. Gender roles, hot topic issue in Corinth. Wealth. And how you would use that wealth. Hot topic issue. Education. Very important in Corinth. And every other Greek culture as well. The whole philosophy issue. Greek philosophy was just having its heyday. Culture was important. Art and literature and language. And beauty. Physical beauty. Of both male and female. Was cherished. The male body was cherished, the female body cherished. Women and men both would adorn themselves in all kinds of ways to draw attention to themselves. 
as was, it's just remarkable, celebrity pastors were the thing in Corinth, even in the church, you know that? Celebrity pastors. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says about the church in Corinth, you guys are all bragging, hey, I'm a follower of Peter, hey, I'm a follower of Paul, hey, I'm a follower of Apollos. And Paul was made fun of, you know why? Because he was ugly, yeah, because he was ugly, because he was short, because he wasn't a very good speaker, and he probably had a speech impediment. And they made fun of him for it. It's America, folks. Remember the prodigal son? You remember him? Two of them, really. But the first one, he said to his dad, hey, dad, give me all the money that's coming to me. And his father said, all right, son, and here. And he gave him half of his wealth. And the the kid took the money. I wrote this down because I wanted to quote it, but I don't know where I wrote it down. I do that a lot. Um, He took the money, and it says that he went off into a foreign land and lived out this riotous life. In that day, in the day of Corinth, when Paul was writing this, he could have said this. In a Greek world, he might have said it this way. He went out and Corinthianized. And that meant you found prostitutes, you found alcohol, you found a party scene, and lived it up. That's who Paul is writing to and writing for. It's remarkable how much Corinth matches America. And we come to chapter 8, and that's where we're going to spend the bark of our time today. We come to chapter 8, and now Paul, in 2 Corinthians, is going to deal with something. Now, let me just say a word about this, okay? Just more introduction here. Um, There's two books written to Corinth, okay? There was the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote that from Ephesus, okay? Paul planted the church in Corinth. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18 and 19. Paul started this church in Corinth. He then left. After being there for over two years, he stayed in Corinth and discipled the believers in Corinth, and then he left after two years and went to Ephesus. And when he's in Ephesus, the believers in Corinth write Paul a letter and ask him a series of questions. Hey, Paul, we don't know what, we don't, we're not sure about this. We're not sure about this. We're not sure about this. Let me tell you some of the questions they ask. Is it good for a man not to get married? Hey, Paul, talk to us about marriage. Is that an okay thing? Hey, hey, Paul, what about people who aren't married in their sex life? What's your answer to them? This is the questions that they're asking Paul, several hundred miles away. Hey, Paul, what about food sacrificed to idols? I know that's, not, that's something we don't understand, but it's the pagan culture. Hey, Paul, what about spiritual gifts? Can you fill us in on that? And then, hey, Paul, what about giving? What should we do about that? So they ask these series of questions, and Paul answers them in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, the letter goes to them, and then word comes back to Paul. And the word is this. The church in Corinth hated your answers. They don't like what you have to say. They're rejecting you, Paul. They're rejecting you. And so Paul goes and visits Corinth. He calls it a painful visit. He goes back, writes them a letter. He calls it, we don't have that letter, he calls it a severe letter. Okay, Paul writes them a severe letter. Shape up, guys. You've drifted from the truth. And then Titus, 
See, you've got all these biblical names that were there in Corinth. Titus, Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, Paul. Titus comes to, comes to Paul and says, Paul, I've got great news. The believers in Corinth have repented. They've turned back to Jesus. And now Paul writes 2 Corinthians. So that's what this is. And in chapter 8, is where we're going to be today, he now begins to deal with the issue of their giving. And I want us to see this generous pattern that Paul is going to lay out. Let's read at verse number 1, and let's read for a while and get the flavor of what's going on. Chapter 8, verse 1, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, Corinth is not in Macedonia. There's a lot, there's a lot of geography here, okay? Corinth is in a place called Achaia. It's, it's, it's another part of, of the region, okay? Macedonia. It's not, it's not this Macedonia part. Macedonia would be Philippi and, and Colossae. It's, it's another region, okay? We want you to know about the grace that's been given to the churches of Macedonia. For in, Now listen to these churches in Macedonia. Listen to verse number two. Hear this. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You ready to move to Macedonia? This is what Macedonia looks like. You're poor and you're persecuted, but you're filled with joy. You want that? How would you like to have that? Poor, persecuted, but filled with joy. See, the American party was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know, Lowell. Look around. Look around at your friends, your relatives, your coworkers. We are rich, and we have it easy, and we're miserable. We are rich, and we have it easy, and we are miserable. Now, don't misunderstand me. Poor doesn't equal joy. No, 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 no. Rich doesn't equal misery. No, no, no. But our attitude and our, our at, the atmosphere of our thoughts towards our things drive our joy. So back to the passage. For in, severe, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor in taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, that he should complete among you this act of grace. So let's, let's try to understand what's going on here. The church in Corinth had a great start. They have so much potential. They have wealth. They have intelligence. They have prominence. This is the place to be in Corinth. And God starts this church right in the middle of Corinth. And he uses Paul to do it. And Paul stays there for two years. He stays in Corinth. And out of Corinth come these great leaders of the church. I mean, God is raising up these people to be sent out all over the world to take the gospel to the world. 
But what happens is, in their wealth and in their prominence and in their, their prosperity, they drift. They drift away from God. And they begin to live for the things of the world. And Paul hears it. And so now what he's doing here is he's writing them and he's saying, Hey guys, look across the ocean. You and Corinth, just look across the sea and look at Macedonia. Macedonia is poor. They're they're, they're in poverty. The word that Paul uses here for poor is is an extreme word of poverty. They don't have anything. They they just live from meal to meal with this level of poverty. It's beggarship. And Paul says to Corinth, you look at them. You guys are miserable. You're desperate. Look at the Macedonians. And you'll be like them. Be like them. Now, I'm telling you, the people in Corinth, there was a, see, there was, this, there was this competition between Corinth and Macedonia, all right? This is like, you know, you get tired of hearing West Virginia jokes, okay? You ever get tired of those? This is like how you feel. People are telling West Virginia jokes, and you're like, yeah, well, let me tell you a Maryland joke. Sorry, Maryland people, okay? I don't mean to offend you. There is a competition here going on. Now let's see what it is that Paul says about the believers of Macedonia and let's see this pattern of generosity and let the Spirit of God challenge us on it, okay? First of all, if you go to the passage, I want you to see that they understand, these churches of Macedonia, that everything, all is from God. All is from God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Grace has been given, Grace, as you, as you know, grace means it's, it's unmerited favor. It's that we get something we don't deserve. And the beautiful thing here about this word grace is the grace that's given to Macedonia is the, will, excuse me, is the willingness to be generous. That's the grace. The grace that they are given from God is the willingness to be generous. They open up their hearts to people and they give of their money, of their time, of their effort. They give. And you can see this desire for generosity all around you. I don't understand this GoFundMe dynamic. Do you? Do you understand this? I mean, something will happen in some place far away, and it's a sad story always. It'll be a house fire or a sick child or the West Virginia striking teachers, and somebody will say, we need to set up a GoFundMe fund, and right now there's $200,000 in this fund. Where did it come from? How did this happen? People are sitting at 15, 20 bucks now, 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 now. Where is this? It's revealing the generous nature of God's thumbprint upon us. It's revealing it. This is the to be generous is to be like God. Think about that for a minute. To be generous is to be like God. We're going to end on that today. We're going to end at verse 9. Go down there with me. Would you this is the this is the example For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that same word, grace. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become 
rich. To be generous is to be like God. Now listen, let's be very clear. I'm not saying be generous so you'll be like God. Hmm. I'm saying as the Spirit of God conformed you to his image, you will be generous. Allow him to conform you. And it'll look like these believers. Let's keep going. It says that, for in a severe test of affliction, I want you to see they're in the world. They're in the world. And they're being afflicted. These Macedonians are being afflicted. They're being persecuted. The church in Philippi, that's one of the churches that in Macedonia, it was always small in number. It was made of a bunch of slaves and working class people. That's who it was. And Paul speaks of their poverty in Philippians chapter 4, but yet God meets their needs. They're afflicted. They're abused and they're rejected because of Christ. They're afflicted. They're in the world, but notice what it says. They have abundant joy, but they're not of the world. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're afflicted like any Christian is always going to be in the world. Paul said this. In fact, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you choose to live Christ in this world, you will suffer persecution. They're afflicted. They're afflicted. So they're in this world, but they're not of this world. But notice what it says here. They have extreme poverty. For in the severe test of affliction, they have this in their extreme poverty. So what this shows us is they have no, they're in the world, but they have no special earthly status. They have no special earthly status. I cannot guarantee you, if you follow Christ, that you're going to be blessed financially. I can't tell you that. They have, they're extremely poor. They're followers of Christ, but they have no special earthly status. And as I already said, this word poverty is a very, very strong term. It's usually used for beggars, homeless, desperate people. It's who they are. But regardless of all that, they overflowed with generosity. And they had great joy. Great joy. It doesn't make sense. Go down, go, second, go, keep going, take your eyes down a little further. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse number 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly, we also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully, will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he desires his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and all times, you may abound in every good work. Here's the truth, guys. Here's the truth we need to recognize. When we are generous, God will be generous with us. But it's not necessarily with dollars. It's not with things that are valuable in this world's eyes. It is with joy. Are you filled with joy today? Do you have joy today? Are you living in an overflow of joy? If you are not, I'm telling you, more money is not going to fix it. More ease is not going to do it. More popular is not going to fix you. 
Having more opportunities isn't going to do it. Greater travel's not going to deliver. More opportunities at work and in your community, it's not going to come through. When we are generous, God will in turn be generous with us. And that generosity will be of the things that matter, such as joy. I feel bad for miserable people. And we all have miserable times, okay? I have bad days just like you. But have you experienced the joy of being generous? Have you had the opportunity to invest in something that God is doing and see that used in the kingdom? And and have you ever experienced that joy that comes in your heart? Like, God, you let me be part of this. That's grace. That is a grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What a great pattern. What a great pattern. Let's keep going and let's see this, the, the pattern continuing here into the next section, okay? At verse number three, let's see how this giving works. And this is where I'm not going to get finished. So verse number three. Let's read three and four and five. For these, these believers in Macedonia, look what they did. They gave according to their means. As I can testify, Paul says. Second, did I say first? Second Corinthians chapter eight, Okay. Verse 3, sorry, heard the pages there. 2 Corinthians 8, 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. So let's see how we are to give. Here's how, this is a model for how we are to give. And it definitely... In the context here, the giving is of money. I I cannot make it mean anything else. It means money. Don't soften this and make and tell yourself it means time or you know your ministry of serving or or you know waving at people. Uh Uh-uh. This is talking about our money. Let's see what it says. Verse three. They gave according to their means. Here's what this means. Some gave more, some gave less. And what drove it was their means. They gave proportionally. They gave proportionally. Here's a challenge for you. You should do this. You, should, you and your spouse, if you're married, you should, you should talk about this and you should say, Lord, what should we give? We want to give proportionally. That means a percentage is what that means. And I challenge you to make this first. On our budget... We put giving first, up above all those other bills. Why? It's an exercise to see that. This comes out first, and it's a proportion. So if God blesses us in some way, we give proportionally more. Proportionally giving is what we're being challenged to. But not just proportionally. It says for they gave according to their means. That's proportionally. As Paul can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So here's what this means. Sometimes they'd be praying about it, they'd be seeking the Lord and God, and they would just feel like God's Spirit was prodding them to give in a special way. And they would do that of their own accord as God led them. So they're giving proportionally, but they're also at times giving sacrificially beyond that. 
And they aren't doing it with their arm twisted behind their back. They that's not how it happens. It, they do this of their own accord, verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. This is a beautiful phrase, and I just got to tell you what it is. Taking earnestly for the favor of taking part. This is the word grace of koinonia. God has given them the grace to be part of this group where they can give. And they do it enthusiastically. Proportionally, sacrificially, enthusiastically. And in this case, look what it says. Taking part in the relief of the saints. There's a need and they give towards it. It's strategic giving. Strategic. So let's talk about Centerpoint Bible Church for a little bit. Okay, let's talk about that. I challenge you to do this. And by the way, I don't have any idea what any of you give. So if you think I'm looking at you, I'm not, all right? I seriously have no idea. I know what one person this church gives, and it's me, okay? I don't know what any of you give. So I don't, I don't have anybody in mind. But here's what I challenge you to. You seek the Lord. God, what would you have our family to do? And then you begin doing that regularly as unto the Lord of your own accord. Be enthusiastic about it. Make it a joyful thing. You might think I'm weird, but when that offering basket comes by, all right, and my wife reaches down her pocketbook and gets that little envelope and puts that in there, I think, thank you, Lord, that that you've done this work in me. I'm not that little kid anymore, 11 years old. I'm telling you, I pinched every single penny that I had. I was a rich 15-year-old, kind of, because I earned it, and it was mine, and I spent it how I wanted to, because I came from not that. So when I had my own dollars, they were mine, and I'm going to spend them how I want to. And God has done work. He's not done. I have further to go. Proportional, sacrificial, enthusiastically, and strategically. Now listen, most of the, not all, but most of the poor in our culture are provided for by, often by your taxes. We understand that, right? So what do we strategically give to here? What do we strategically give to? We strategically give to reach people. That's what we give towards. People that need Christ. People that need to be pointed to Jesus. That's what our money here goes to primarily. It's reaching people. Strategically investing in what God is doing. So that this community would be reached. God has placed us here strategically. We are the church of Spring Mills, folks. This is it. When people wonder about the care and the love and who's going to point to Jesus, it's us. It's center point. There's no other church that meets in this school. There's no other church that meets in any of these schools. We have the opportunity. We are placed here. We need to strategically invest what God has given us to reach. Why? Because he's our model. Let's go down to verse number nine. And look to Jesus. There's no greater act of generosity than what Christ did at the cross. 
And that's why Paul is bringing up this example to these stingy believers in Corinth. That's what's going on. He's challenging them to not be so tight-fisted and says, look to Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord. This is 10 times. That's this, the, 10 times God uses the word, or yeah, the Spirit of God uses the word grace in this passage. 10 times. He's making a point. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had so much. This is, this is now hearkening back to the eternal nature of Jesus with God for eternity in the past in his presence. Yet for our sake, he became poor. You know what that is? It's taking on flesh. It's becoming a man. Being born as a child in a manger and growing up for 30 some years on this cursed planet. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And folks, that has nothing to do with dollars and cents. It has everything to do with a generous heart that we find in God. And I believe the Spirit of God is dwelling in you. And so he is conforming you to the image of his Son. And as he does that, you will find yourself reflecting his generous nature in a greater and greater way. We're going to celebrate what Jesus did in becoming poor for us as we move into this little sort of series on generosity. We're going to look to Christ now in the way that he commanded us to through the celebration of communion. And this is very much this passage. When we have the bread in our hands, that is to remind us that Jesus became a body for all of us. So we could partake of him. When we hold that little cup of juice in our hand, it's to remind us that he shed blood for us. To make us rich, this passage says. And that richness looks like cleanness. That we are forgiven before him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your work of grace. Lord, that you have saw fit to have a plan that brings us your righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for being willing to be generous, Lord. Your generous heart was there at the cross. At the moment of incarnation when you became a man, your generous heart was being revealed. Lord, forgive us for our stinginess. Forgive us for our lack of generosity. Forgive us for our selfishness, Lord. Give us a generous heart. A heart like yours. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.